I really forgot to put those lights on today. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, and chapter 2, verses 4 to 9. Hear the word of our Lord. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house, to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word to us for your faithfulness to us, uh, for the um, words that you gave Haggai so long ago. We pray that our time together would be an encouragement to us, that you would challenge us with your grace, that you would comfort us with your love. Uh, We pray that you would meet with us, transform us by your word even now, soften our hearts that we might hear of your love and your faithfulness to us, and that we might respond with faith and repentance. We ask that you would work in us even now as we come before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever been disappointed? I'm going to go with yes is the answer to that question. Um, Many of us experienced great disappointment this past week with the Astros losing in the World Series. Um, We moved from being filled with excitement and anticipation of them being the World Series champions again with maybe not cheating. Um, And we were really looking forward to celebrating as a city together and buying all the World Series gear. Um, And we moved very quickly to discouragement um, and disappointment in the span of just a few hours on Tuesday night. Um, We know what it means to be disappointed, whether it's, you know, with the Astros losing or whether it's something more serious, like someone making a promise to you um, and not keeping it, or it's conflict in a relationship that you deeply value Or maybe you've experienced deep pain and suffering and loss. Or maybe it's spiritual disappointment that you're not growing to the place that you thought you would be at this point in your life. You're still struggling with the same things that you were struggling with when you were younger. Or maybe just life hasn't turned out the way that you hoped it would be. Um, You can feel stuck in the middle of disappointment. So if that's where you find yourself this morning, 
um, then I'm glad you're here. Because God has a, a, a message of challenge, and he has a message of great comfort for us through his prophet Haggai this morning. Um, the people of God in Haggai's day were experiencing disappointment like we do. Um, they've returned from exile after spending 70 years in exile in Babylon for not following God, for not obeying his commands, for not keeping his covenant, for having hard hearts toward him. Um, and now, after 70 years, they're back in Jerusalem. They're back in Judah. They're filled with excitement and anticipation of being delivered from exile. They're excited about being back in their homes. They're excited about being back in their crops and with their friends and their families. They're excited about rebuilding their city and rebuilding the temple, the place where they worshiped. They thought that they'd be able to, you know, recapture their former glory as a nation. But when they returned to Jerusalem in 538 B.C., they became quickly disappointed at the reality of what they were confronted with. Their disappointment led them to discouragement and eventually to apathy. They simply gave up, and they turned their hearts again and their focus again inward on themselves, and they were frustrated. And that's where the word of the Lord comes to Haggai to challenge and to comfort his people by calling the people of God to continue to place their faith and their hope and their trust in him and his glory the God who would come and rescue them, who would give them his peace, and who would come to set all things right. So I'm going to set the stage really quickly. I mean, I just did a little bit, but I'm going to continue to set the stage for just a moment with Haggai, because I'd be willing to bet, like, you never heard a sermon on Haggai before. I haven't. <laughs> there are none. Um, um, there probably are a few. But um, I'd be willing to bet that this isn't a book that we're very familiar with. I mean, it's two pages, right? Like, it's, it's two chapters. You can read it really quickly. Um, but it's, it's a book that we're just really unfamiliar with. It's like kind of lost in the shuffle towards the end of the Minor Prophets. But it's two short chapters. And with Haggai, God brings five prophecies um, to Haggai in these, these short two chapters. Um, and they occur during four months. Um, they occur during August to December of 520 B.C. Eighteen years before that, Cyrus, king of Persia, um, issued a decree that let all the Jewish exiles go home to rebuild their temple. So they leave Babylon, excited to go reestablish their community, excited to reestablish their, their um, place of worship as God's people, and they, their goal was to rebuild the temple that was destroyed, and their hope was that the Lord would restore his presence among them again. But when they get to Judah, Ezra 4 tells us that they experienced intense and bitter opposition, and their hopes and their dreams were, were basically crushed. Uh, their enemies came, and they offered to help them rebuild the temple. You're thinking, like, that sounds awesome. Um, but Zerubbabel, the governor from David's line, Joshua, the high priest, and the other heads of the families, they said this to their enemies. They said, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Now, their intentions were not healthy and good for wanting to help them rebuild. Um, this was God's covenant people. They were taking it on themselves. As that, this was their command. They weren't to include any other people to help them. And so what happens is these people, we continue to read in Ezra 4, the peoples around them set out to discourage them and to make them afraid to go on building. 
They bribed officials to work against them and to frustrate their plans. So God's people here are facing real, politically charged, um, and politically connected and determined opposition that frustrated all their efforts. And so by the time Haggai, his first prophecy comes in August of 520, the return to exiles, they've just kind of settled into this uncomfortable status quo. Um, they're just grinding out their lives uh, while they're coming to terms with this new disappointment of, of what life is going to look like. They're thinking probably, you know, why should we just struggle? Why should we struggle to even accomplish this great thing that the Lord has asked us to do in rebuilding his temple? Um, things like this are happening. We're, Zechariah 4.10 says, the days in which we're living are the days of small things. This is not a big important time in our life. Let's just kind of bear down, keep our heads down, not bother anybody. These people are already against us. Let's not try to disrupt things. Let's just do our best to improve our own family situation, our own personal lives. Um, let's just kind of like focus and, and stay out of everybody's way. The result of that is many turn their hearts, their lives again away from trusting in God and his promises for them. And they're settling for a life of disappointment apart from him. They adopted this perspective that we read about in, in chapter 1, verse 2. The people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. They knew rebuilding the temple was what they were supposed to be there to do in the first place. They knew it was necessary to build it at some point. Um, but they'd gotten to the point where they just reasoned, you know what, now is not the time for that. Um, and Haggai's first prophecy that we read about in chapter 1. It came during harvest. It's busy. Um, they're collecting their, their crops. They're all busy in their fields. We can't get to work. We have other things to do. And this was a difficult time financially for them. They didn't have much money, and King Darius is levying more and more taxes on them, so there's not enough pro money for, like, a big building campaign. Like, it's too much to do right now. Just getting food you know, on our table and clothes on our back for the cold months coming up, that's enough for us to worry about and focus on right now. And so with all these dis disappointments, all these discouragements and this opposition coming, they've stopped building the temple. Um, and it's been 16 years now at this point that the temple has just sat dormant in disrepair. 16 years. I mean, we've been here for like 25 years, 26 years. Like, it's, it's, think about if, like, we started a building campaign and then just did nothing for 16 years. Like, y'all would be angry. <laughs> I would be sad. Um, but that's where the word of the Lord comes to Haggai here to challenge to and to comfort God's people. So first, Haggai challenges God's people. His primary challenge is to rebuild the Lord's temple. And then he tells them four times in this book, Give careful thought to your ways. And giving careful thought to your ways, he's, he's challenging them to re-examine their priorities. They've stopped building the temple, and they've eased their consciences. They're saying things like, you know, in God's providence, it's not time right now to do this. And we read about it in chapter 1, verse 2 again. The time has not come to rebuild the Lord's house. So this like false piety, this misunderstanding of the importance of the task that God had called them to allowed them to pursue other priorities in their life, like building and repairing their own homes, 
um, investing in their own lives, investing in their own interests, in their own 401ks if they had them then. Um, One writer says this about them. He says, they were preoccupied with making a living, improving their standard of life, rationalizing their adversities, and accusing the Lord of being untrue to his promises. And if you know anything about the temple and Old Testament worship, this is central to who God's people are. This is the place where they, they go and they meet with God. This is the place where they, meet, they make sacrifices to God. This is the place where they are shaped as a people. But they're too busy with their own homes. They're too busy with their own lives that they can't really be bothered with God's house. So Haggai, through the Lord, calls them out. Verse, verse 4 from chapter 1. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, paneled might not mean much to you, um, but it's a really odd word to be chosen here because four of the five times that it's used in the Older Testament, it's used specifically to describe Solomon's temple, which was this beautiful, glorious place where God dwelled in the midst of his people. And Haggai's point here is not just you're, you're leaving God's house in disrepair while you're living in these like ornately decorated homes. His major point is, you people of God, you're really happy to, 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 to spend all of your time and your energy and your resources into building your own homes, but you're claiming that there isn't enough there to focus on God's house and restore God's house, but you're doing it for, your, for yourself. And, you know, this is a common problem for us, too, I think, um, when we face difficulty, when we face the difficulty and discouraging and disappointing situations in our own lives. We find it really easy to withdraw from worship, to withdraw from being present with God's people, from serving God, from serving those around us. And we claim, you know, I I just need to focus on me right now. Um, I just need to pour all of my time, all of my energy, all of my efforts and my resources to meet my own needs. You know, when life gets difficult, it's really easy for us to turn inwards and to focus solely on ourselves and our problems and our family and our needs and our wants and our desires. But like we find here in the book of Haggai, that doesn't work. There's no life in that. It's not being who God called and created us to be. Haggai continues in 5 to 7 of chapter 1. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. God's people aren't getting out of life what they are putting into it. They're not experiencing the fullness of God's blessings and his grace and his peace towards them, but rather they're experiencing an inadequate and an unfulfilling life in which every pleasure they taste actually turns to ash in their mouth. Everything good that they grasp is just leaves them disappointed and incomplete and, and fleeting. So we have to ask, why is life this way for the people in Haggai's day? We've alluded to it already. The problem is, is they've turned their hearts um, and their actions um, towards themselves. They've turned their hearts and their lives away from God, and that's why Haggai calls them and challenges them, consider your ways. They've turned them, the, their focus solely inward and on themselves, and they're not acting in faithfulness to their obligations as God's covenant 
God's dearly loved, God's chosen people, they're just, they're just on this treadmill, and they're running faster and faster, and they're working harder and harder, but they're not going anywhere. I'd be willing to bet that we all in this room know a little bit of what that's like. Um, and God is calling his people here in Haggai and through Haggai to abandon their excuses, to reorder their priorities, that they're not going to experience God's fullness and his blessings and the fruitfulness of their lives until they've reordered their hearts and their priorities around restoring God's house. And then what's the result of, of this challenge that Haggai brings to them? Um, if you have your Bibles, look at verse 12. Uh, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. The people turn their hearts, they're convicted of their sin and their unfaithfulness to God. They see they haven't been pursuing God's um, kingdom. They haven't been following him and turning their hearts towards him. They, they repent and they turn once again to him. And that should be really every time we come into contact with the scripture, that should be what happens with us as well when we come into contact with God's word and we see how we have fallen short how we don't line up with God's standards of love and faithfulness, how we're, we're called to turn our hearts towards him again and repent. You know, none of us, you know, me included, can say that all day, every day, we seek God's kingdom first and we pursued his righteousness with our whole hearts. None of us in this room can say that we have loved our neighbor, every person we come into contact with, and God himself with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. And Haggai's words to us are to consider our ways. And I think if we do that, what we'll see is we all struggle with building our own homes. We all struggle with, with having misplaced priorities and misplaced hearts, and we pursue our own wants and desires apart from God's call to us to be faithful to him, and we neglect him in his house. But what is so beautiful here in the book of Haggai is when God's people repent and they turn towards him again, what do they find? Verse 13 says this, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people, I am with you, declares the Lord. What they find is when they turn their hearts towards God, God has already turned himself towards them and says, I am with you. They find immediate restoration in their relationship with God. And that is what is true for us too. When we find that, that we don't measure up, when we fail, the key for us is not just to stay in discouragement and to stay in, in regret and shame and disappointment and think, I'm so terrible, I'm so awful. What we find here is that our God turns towards us in love and says, I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm present here with you, and I love you. And what we find is what, there's a quote in the front of your bulletin um, from Ian Duga that says this. We find this about our God. We find that he's not a harsh taskmaster waiting for us to step out of line so that he can punish us severely for the slightest infraction. On the contrary, he confronts us with our sins so that he can forgive us, 
so that he can show us his mercy and his grace when we repent. He's a loving father who waits with arms outstretched all day long to welcome home the returning prodigal. That is who our God is. And so what's the challenge for us from this text? Because we're not the post-exilic community coming out of uh, Babylon needing to rebuild God's house. Um, The application for us is not pull yourselves together, get it together, get serious about God, and get busy for him. The application is not give all your money to the church for a building campaign to to enhance our impact here in the community. This isn't the health and wealth gospel where, you know, if you give more and you're more faithful to God, then you're going to experience his blessings and you're going to get a new car and you're going to get a new golf club membership. Um, You're going to get that house that you really want. Um, The challenge for us is to consider our ways, to ask ourselves the question, you know, where have we placed our focus away from God's house? Where we focused our attention away from, from building God's house? You know, how are we focused on building our own homes? That doesn't necessarily just mean physically. Um, you know, it could be through focusing on our success at work or at home or at school. Um, it could be just in the ways that we isolate ourselves from community of God's people so that we can just, we can focus on, on ourselves and our own needs and wants and hurts and our own desires so we can lick our wounds. Um, you know, it could be with our stuff. It could be with our possessions. It could be that we've given our hearts away to materialism so that we can, you know, amass more things and more money so that we can have nicer homes and go on nicer vacations and, and do greater and bigger things. Um, but I think if we're honest, when we land in the place that we, like when we've achieved our vision and our goals for ourselves, what we find is, is it wasn't really enough, that the goalposts keep moving, that we got that amount of money that we thought we needed to be happy, and we're not. We got that car that we thought was going to make us happy, and we're not. We got that relationship that we thought was going to solve all of our problems, and it didn't. And so what do we do with that? Um, Haggai presents us with a different vision for living. The alternative to building our own houses is to repent, to humble ourselves before the Lord, and to pour all of our energies into building God's house. Jesus says this is actually the only way to true life and to true blessing. Matthew 6, 33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seeking God's glory and his kingdom is the one thing in this life that promises not to disappoint us, that brings lasting and sure fulfillment to our lives and to our souls. In, in place of our constant just preoccupation with food that doesn't fill us, with drink that doesn't satisfy us, with clothing that cannot warm our souls, God promises us, we've read about it with Jesus in, in John chapter 6, God promises us bread that satisfies. God promises us real food, real drink, real clothing. In Jesus, he gives us the bread of life that satisfies. He gives us a living fountain of water, and he gives us glorious, white, lightning-covered um, garments that reflect the holiness that our God gives us. So in place of all the useless things that that we so readily give our lives to, God promises to give us lasting 
into true satisfaction into him. But building God's house, it, just, it means so much more than just you know, writing a check to the church. For Haggai and his community, you know, the temple, it was the visible symbol of the Lord's presence in the midst of his people. And for us, the, the visible symbol of God's presence, it's, it's no longer the temple. It's not even the church building. Um, according to the Newer Testament, the symbol of God's presence among us is the body of Jesus himself. Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. Um, he's the one who physically comes and brings God's presence and glory to our world. Uh, John 1, chapter 14 says, The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's personally the fulfillment of everything that Haggai's pointing towards. He's the fulfillment of the temple and the tabernacle. In Haggai 2.9, the Lord says through Haggai, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace. Well, if you know anything about the second temple, it's not as glorious. It, the people that were alive when, when the second temple was built that remembered the first temple, they wept. They were sad. This was just like a, a shack compared to the glory of the former temple. So what is, what's God talking about here? God is pointing forward, not just to this building, but to a temple that's greater than Solomon's temple. He's pointing forward to this temple that's going to bring peace and shalom and lasting blessing and fulfillment, all of life flourishing. He's pointing to Jesus. He's pointing us to the one who came, whose body itself was the temple of God, the fullness of God come in all of his glory that came to be with his people. And now that this Jesus has died and has risen again and has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, he's poured out his spirit onto his people and God is present in the world through us, his church, through his people. This peace that, that Haggai prophesies about that was promised in the new temple, it comes through Jesus to us. We read about it in Ephesians 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. This peace that, that Paul is talking about is the same peace that Haggai was talking about that we get in Jesus. 2 Corinthians six sixteen says, We are the temple of the living God. So as the body of Christ in the world now, the church the people of God are the temple of the living God. The church is the place where the world and the people around us are to experience God's presence among them, God's love and his patience and his forgiveness and his holiness and his, his kindness and his love. That is what the world is supposed to experience through us. And so for us, building God's house it means serving the world around us, serving God in the task of making God known to the world around us. 
making his presence evident in everywhere we find ourselves, whether it's at the kitchen table or it's in the classroom or at work or it's in the office or it's in the neighborhood or it's at the soccer field or it's at band practice or wherever you find yourself, God is calling us to be the display cabinets of his grace and his glory for him. Um, in this book, uh, 66 Love Letters by Larry Crabb, um, he writes as if he's having a conversation with God about each book of the Bible, of what God is trying to get him to learn through reading the scripture. And in this part in Haggai, he asks the question, God, what does it mean for me to build your temple? And God answers him, whatever you do for my sake, that involves the sacrifice of self-interest, whatever you do to reveal me to others when you feel least able to do so, Whatever you do that pleases me at any cost to yourself, that is building my temple. Building God's house for us means that we pour all of our efforts, all of our energies away from ourselves into those around us, into the, into the world around us for the good of those around us, to reveal God's presence to reveal his kindness and his grace and his glory, to lift up, to encourage, and to strengthen, and to show the beauty of God's holiness and his grace to those around us. Paul mirrors this call in Philippians 2. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's what it looks like to build God's house for us in the here and the now. It's, it's loving and serving people the way that Jesus has loved and served us. It's loving and serving people, revealing God through the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us as his church. It's loving and serving people and sharing God's presence in, in his kindness through, through our hospitality, through our homes, in our neighborhoods. Anywhere that God has called us to be, that we're called to be the indwelling presence of God to those around us. So how do we do it? It's hard. We have to admit that. Um, it's not through our own efforts. It's not through us just focusing, like, I'm, I'm going to build God's house today. I'm going to demand better of myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to pull up my bootstraps and I'm going to do this on my own. It only comes through the comfort that Haggai tells us in his prophecies here. It's through the presence, it's through the peace, and it's through the promises of God for us. So the reason God invites, the reason God empowers his people to get, work build, to, get to work building his house is through the reality of his presence with them. He says in verse 113, I am with you. You are not alone in your life. You are not alone in your spiritual journey. You are not alone in your parenting. You are not alone at work. You are not alone in your discouragement. I am with you. And if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, you have the God of the Bible, the Lord of hosts, the, the, the creator, the rescuer, the forgiver, you have him inside of you at all times. No matter what you're doing, no matter where you find yourself, no matter how bad you're being, no matter how good you're being, you have the Lord Almighty inside of you. He gives you his grace. He gives you the gift of his presence 
He really is there. Galatians 2.20 says it. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Ephesians 2.22, in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So it's not just you personally, but it's also you plural as the church. You, Grace Presbyterian Church, are the dwelling place of God for the world around us, for the woodlands around us, for spring in Houston, in Texas, in the world around us. You are God's presence mediated for his purposes. God is alive and he's moving and he's active in your life. And you're not left to yourself to figure it out. You don't have to figure it out alone. You don't have to navigate the difficulties and the anxiety-producing, stressful, disappointing, and discouraging circumstances of your life. You have the God of the universe with you at all times. No matter what you face, you are not alone. That is what encourages us to get to work doing what he calls us to. But it's not just that. He also grants us his peace. And we read about in chapter 2, verse 9, um, and we also read about it earlier in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. He came and preached peace to those who were near. He reconciled us in our broken wandering, in our sinful states, and he made us new in him. Colossians 1.19 and 20 from chapter 1 say this, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your behalf, he makes peace with you. He takes away the dividing wall of hostility. He takes you from being an enemy who wants nothing to do with him, who's fighting against him tooth and nail, to being a child, to being his beloved to being his dearly loved and cherished son or daughter. That is who you are now. You are at peace with the God of the universe. He is not mad at you. He is excited about you. And that is what you need to remember day in and day out because you will tell yourself something different. The world around you will tell you something different. Your friends and your family, everyone at every chance will be so happy to tell you how disappointed they are in you. But that is not who you are if you are Jesus. We need to remember what Brad told us last week from Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That is who you are. Romans 8.1 is true for you. There's no condemnation left for you. It's been taken out on Jesus. You are God's child. Hebrews 10, 10 and 14. You're getting like the greatest hits today. They're just coming at you. Hebrews 10, 10 and 14. We've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That sentence doesn't make any sense. You can't be perfect and be needing to be made perfect unless you're in God's economy. Because you are already made perfect in Jesus when he looks at you and loves you. So when God looks at you, whether you're struggling, whether you're sinning, whether you're failing and you're his, he sees Jesus and he rejoices. And because we live in the already not yet of life, that God's future grace has not been fully applied to us yet, but his past grace is true for us, you are perfect in his eyes. And he's making you more like Jesus. 
day in and day out. As you continue to live out of the reality of who he has called you to be, you are at peace with God. You're not at war with him anymore. You are at peace, and you have his peace, his shalom, the wholeness, the flourishing that he gives you. It is yours through Jesus' sacrifice for you. And lastly, I promise, the, the, the promises of God given to us about our future are the last thing that we have here. In chapter 3, 21 to 23, Haggai says this. He says, tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I'll overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Here at the end of this, this second chapter of Haggai, we see God renewing his promise to the Davidic line of his promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel 17. He promises that he is going to work and to save his world and set it to rights through David's family. This is a huge encouragement to Zerubbabel because his grandfather, Jehoiachin, if you go to Jeremiah 22, he was a signet ring and he was ripped off of God's hand. And he here is being told, you're chosen. I love you. I'm with you. I'm for you. God is inviting his people to look forward to the time that's going to come where he's going to come and he's going to shake the heavens and he's going to shake the earth. And this language here in the Older Testament, it's used to describe a visible appearance of God where God will shake the heavens and the earth like a little kid would shake a snow globe. But instead of that snow globe being just everything's topsy-turvy and everything goes sideways and nothing's where it's supposed to be anymore, this shaking by the Lord of hosts is, is not taking things that are disordered and, and it's taking things that are disordered and it's shaking them and setting them to rights. It's not taking things that, are scattered, that aren't scattered and making them scattered. It's taking things that are scattered and making them whole and making them right. And that's what Jesus begins to accomplish when he gets out of the tomb on the cross, after dying on the cross for us. Jesus, the true heir of David, he comes and he's cut off. He is ripped off of God's hand and he takes the punishment for all of our sin. And in being raised to new life in the resurrection, he defeats death. And it's the first act of God declaring that he has won the victory and that he is coming back to set all things right. We have that security. We have that sure promise to hold on to day in and day out because we are secure and safe in his hands if we turn to him in faith. And that's where God promises to remind us. In Revelation 21, he gives us this hope, this promise of this is what life is going to look like when my kingdom comes. He says this, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning. There'll be no more crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, see, I'm making everything new. 
And then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy, and these words are true. God never abandons. God never forsakes his people. He's with us. He's for us. He brings his peace. He brings his promise of what life is going to be like with him, and he invites us to take part in building his kingdom because he loves us, and he's for us, and he's with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, uh, for this book from Haggai. Uh, We thank you for the gift that it is to us that you spoke to him so long ago and that it means something to us today, that your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. We thank you for your people's faithfulness, for them turning to you and building your temple. We thank you for your faithfulness to your people and sending your son so that we might be at peace with you, so that we might have your presence and we might know of your sure promises that you are coming again to set all things right. Father, help us to cling to that even now. It's in Jesus' name we come. Amen.